In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 17. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Well, I'm back in Canada for the time being. Joanna is still in New Jersey. As soon as we were able, we returned to the Whispering Pages bookstore. The place was in mild disarray. The cops had still wanted an explanation for all the eyewitness accounts of the now-intact store exploding and had declared it a crime scene for as long as they could justify until being forced to chalk it up to mass hysteria. As soon as we entered the store, I could tell something was bothering Joanna, and it wasn't the disorganized books. I can feel something, she said when I asked. She began walking the aisles, her fingertips brushing the spines of the books until she jumped back as if she had received an electric shock. I knew exactly what was happening. She was feeling the energy from certain stories, as I've been able to since the beginning. Our theory is that when we were dragged from the bookstore by the unknown figure, their touch enabled this in Joanna. That's part of the weirdness of this. Nobody can provide answers, but when you theorize them yourself, it's like you just know when they're right, in the same way you can tell which stories or documents are right. Joanna and I spent some time testing the books in Whispering Pages. We were each able to identify the right book out of a selection chosen by the other. We were both getting the same energy from the same books, no doubt about it. Here's what bothers me the most, though. Our storage unit has some published works, true, but it's mostly documents, correspondence, etc. Whispering Pages stock is almost exclusively secondhand copies of mainstream published fiction. Some public domain, and some I couldn't legally perform on the show. So, Joanna is still in New Jersey, cataloging every single book within Whispering Pages' walls that she senses something from. We're hoping to find a connecting thread, a trend, because at a glance, there was none. And I'm back in Canada, delving further into the storage unit to find stories I can share. Today's story came from a series of photographs printed out on standard paper. You'll see why. Author William Stewart transcribed the text from the photographs, and Mick Wingert and Atticus Jackson have provided a dramatic performance for us. So today, we share a story I was able to confirm the veracity of. The final month of Hal Sharkey's Everything Podcast.
The following is a series of podcast transcriptions by a guy whose show I've followed for years. His name is Hal Sharkey, or Hal2001 on the forums. If you haven't heard of him, Hal does a daily show where he provides in-depth analysis and reviews of movies, books, and cool products. Until recently, the show has always been light and fun. Except in brief moments of insight when he was reviewing a serious movie or book or something. In the past few weeks, something changed. At first glance, it seems like Hal had some kind of nervous breakdown. He started getting really weird, and then he just stopped posting. But for almost a decade, he did a show almost every weekday. His is one of the only few podcasts that have over 2,000 episodes. I've been a religious follower of his for the better part of 10 years, and I feel like I know the man. This is really, really strange. What's even more strange is that since Hal quit posting, his show has disappeared from all podcast platforms, and his website's been taken down. Since I started sharing these transcripts, my posts have been deleted. And I don't know why. I've contacted the admins of several forums, but they act like they don't know what I'm talking about. Something is terribly wrong here. Note, these are transcripts from his podcast. Some of this may be hard to read because I had to take pictures of my screen to capture the text. For some reason... I couldn't take a screenshot of his website before it was taken down. December 15th, 2018. So as best as I can without spoilers, the ritual is basically a supernatural version of Predator with a lot of skinny British guys instead of heavily armed commandos. I mean, it's okay, but for my money, I'd rather just have watched Hawkins tell his off-color jokes again. Two stars. And today's item review that you can purchase by clicking on the link below is the Dorset PX12 Deluxe Waffle Iron and Panini Maker. How does it work? Each cast iron plate is reversible so that you get two appliances in one. When breakfast is done, simply release the catch on the bottom and flip the plate over to the flat side and you can make a press sandwich. And, and here's the kicker. If you only flip one of the plates, you can make foods that are waffled on one side and flat on the other. I never knew I needed that feature until I got the PX-12, but now I can't imagine life without it. Five out of five stars. December 16th, 2018. Welcome to Hal's Everything Show, where we talk about everything. Episode 2479. That's right, folks. Only 21 days to go until the big 2,500. Do you know how hard it is to come up with 2,500 things to talk about? It's not easy. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I mean, it does take a lot of work and all, but you guys make it all worthwhile. And, And to prove how much you all mean to me, we'll be doing a massive giveaway for 2,500. So the countdown is on. This week, we're going to talk about Kurt Russell. From dancing Disney kid to Santa Claus, we're going all out. Did you know that as he lay dying, Walt Disney, in a sudden burst of energy, demanded a pen and piece of paper? He got his pen and his paper, and then he scrawled the name Kurt Russell on it before laying down and going to that great big castle in the sky. 
and nobody knows why. Hmm? So, let's start with Kurt's early work, including TV series as a child actor. And that's enough for tonight. I'll be back tomorrow to discuss the Disney years, hopefully blow through some of the more obscure stuff, although there are some true gems in there. And then we'll get to the good stuff, like John Carpenter, The Thing, Escape from New York, and of course, Goldie Hawn. Today's item review comes to us from Kitchen Magic. I know, I know. But I've been on a cooking kick lately, but I've been getting some really cool stuff. The kit you see can be purchased by clicking the link below. This is a traveling food processor. Not much different from a regular food processor, except that the whole thing comes apart and packs into itself for easy transportation. Going to an Airbnb for the weekend? Tired of digging through cabinets and hoping they have what you need? Bring Kitchen Magic with you and you have everything at your fingertips. I got one just the other day and my breakfast smoothies have never been tastier. Five out of five stars. December 18th, 2018. Uh, Hey, everyone. Sorry for no show yesterday. They're installing something in the neighborhood, and the internet was totally down for most of the evening. Not my fault, but here we are with post 2480. Let's get back to Kurt Russell, okay? Okay. Kurt began working with John Carpenter when he played Elvis in the 1979 made-for-TV movie appropriately named Elvis. Uh, I was surprised, actually, by how good this movie was. December 22nd, 2018. If there were enough curse words to express how frustrating the past few days have been, I still don't think it would be enough. First the internet, then the cable, then my cell phones. Uh, Technical difficulties and slow uploads are keeping me from doing my normal thing, okay? But I want to stay on track for episode 2500, so... I'll forgive myself if you'll forgive me, okay? This is basically all I can do for a post today, so I'll be back tomorrow with part three of the Kurt Russell experience. Ciao. December 25th, 2018. Merry Christmas. I love you all. December 30th, 2018. Happy New Year. I'll be back as soon as I can. January 2nd, 2019. Hello, all you happy people. Sheesh. Here we are. Let's see, number 2484. Now, I hate to do it, but I have to count the last few posts to keep us on schedule for the 2500th episode extravaganza. It's been annoying, but let me tell you that whatever maintenance they did at the back of the neighborhood has been worth it. My internet speed is more than tripled. There's a whole new slew of channels on TV, and now I have full bars on my cell where I used to have two. So I'll forgive them for the interruptions. Now, before we get started, shout out to Katie242 and Chris679 for their Patreon support. Every little bit helps. And now, on to the show. And our item of today is a universal remote control in the shape of a wand from the Harry Potter universe fully programmable. You can turn your lights on and off, open and close your garage door, and activate Alexa with a simple flick of the wrist. I've been using it for days and it never gets old. Get yours today at the link below and we'll see you tomorrow. January 3rd, 2019. 
Great show today, and I want to give a shout-out to Celia7 and SShadow2 on the blog. Great discussion there. Uh, and no, 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 everything's just fine. You know, life happens, and it takes you off your schedule, you know? Anyway, today's item of the day is the USMC Fighting and Utility Knife by K-Bar. Now, I'm no hunter, but I can imagine that peeling the skin from a still-steaming buck on a brisk winter morning would be pretty fun with a tool like this. 10-inch blade, kydex sheath, and made in the good old US of A. Many a man met his good and bloody end at the point of one of these babies. You remember that scene from Saving Private Ryan where the big German stabs Adam Goldberg through the heart? That was a K-bar. Get yours today at the link below. January 4th, 2019. You ever sit and wonder if anything you do is worth it? At all? I mean, I know I do. Here I am in my 40s. No wife, no kids, shitty job with an even shittier boss, and the only thing I hope for at the end of the day is to get a couple of acknowledgments from the internet. Just a few fucking crumbs. But it's like pulling teeth to get even a couple of comments or shares. Do you know how much time it takes to make this show every day? Do you care? Probably not. Too busy scrolling to the next picture of some woman's ass. Fuckers. Anyway, here's the fucking show for what it's worth. Note. Prior to this episode, Hal Sharkey had never used foul language of any kind on his show. In nearly ten years, he'd never even said hell. Or damn. He's mentioned many times that in the sea of infinite crudeness... He was proud that his show could be enjoyed by anyone and everyone. 2486 marks a dramatic change to the tone and content of the podcast. Item of the day is the blue microphone by Yeti. Yes, you two can scream into the void with no one to hear you but a few whiny-ass sycophants who only seem to want to bitch about what you're not doing right. $139 at the link, but you can probably find it cheaper on eBay where smarter people than I have decided to do something better with their time. Look at me! I've got internet! Wee! January 5th, 2019. Episode 2487. 13 away from the end. The end? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I've... Um... Sorry for the way I've been acting. I've been stressed, and, you know, the, um... Holidays have not been kind. Um, I think I might have caught a bug or something because I've basically been feeling tired and useless, and I just... I can't seem to shake it. I'll do my best to push through if you'll just bear with me. I really do care about you guys. I mean it. Anyway, we got off track a little bit, so I'm gonna skip ahead to Big Trouble in Little China. Classic movie. One of my favorites. The way old Snake takes out all those magic Chinamen is just plain artful. Moving on to Overboard. Now, why would the guy from The Thing be in such a shitty movie? I'd have called up my agent and told him to go fuck himself for sending me a script like that. Guess he got to plow Goldie between takes, though, so it probably wasn't all bad. Did you know that a cockroach can live without its head for a really long time? I caught this one the other day and popped its head off with a pair of nail clippers. 
I put it in a jar on my desk and the little bastard's still running around. <clears throat> Tango and Cash was underrated, but nobody's seen it, so I won't bother. Tombstone is worth its own show, so we'll stop there. Today's item of the day is the world's fastest internet brought to you by Norcom. Bringing you the best in post 5G speeds, click the link below to have a Norcom node installed in your neighborhood. Norcom is the only independent service provider that guarantees speeds over 70% faster than the competition without a contract. That's Norcom! Note. Episodes 2488 through 2490 were normal. The Tombstone episode in particular was extra long and full of love and humor. Those have been left out. January 10th, 2019. Episode 2491, 10 more to go! Slaughter them all! Slaughter them all! Headless Roach is still alive. Can't eat, but doesn't seem to mind. I planted a garden once. It got destroyed by pestilence. Pestilence. Pests. Little fucking bugs. You know what I did? I turned it all into the dirt and let my dog shit on it. <laughs> Stupid earth always making everything so goddamn difficult. I should have kept the head. I wonder if I could reattach it. Would it be thankful? Would it give me a, a like or a share? Oh, Jesus, what is wrong with me? The furious circles. The furious circles. The furious circles. Sounds like a good name for a band. The Furious Circles. Stupid. Why would a circle be furious? Circles don't have heads to lose. I watched another Jack Russell movie, but it didn't sink in. I mean, I just sat there watching the pretty lights flicker all around and the Furious Circles circling furiously. Did you hear that? My neighbor must have seen the Furious Circles, too. Blew his own dumbass head clean off his shoulders. Said it wasn't enough. What's not enough, Rambo? Oh, 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 Rambo! Oh, when I run the, um, uh, when the, when the headless cockroach stops moving, we'll do a thing about Rambo. Yes. I've been reading your emails, and for the last time, I'm fine. Just something in the water, you know. Maybe. Today's item of the day is something everybody needs in this day and age, body armor. This set arrived on my doorstep a couple of days ago and I haven't taken it off. Spec sheet says it's the top end of light plate Kevlar and an experimental fiber they can't discuss. You know that guy who shot up that auditorium in, uh, um, was it Russia? Or was it Belgium? I don't remember. Maybe Spain. But anyway, that's why it took so many shots to take him down. He had on a set of these babies. Not that I endorse shooting anything up, not even a little. But when they start shooting, you'll be safe enough, I suppose. Now, there isn't a link for this. You have to follow these instructions. I've edited the show notes for episode 229. There, you will find a link that will take you to a document. Copy the text, then close your browser and open a new one and paste the text. This Special promotion for a limited time. Um, the suit is free. You know, just claim it and it's yours. This fucking cockroach is fascinating. January 15th, 2019. Welcome to episode 2492 of the Hal's Everything Show. I'm Hal, your host, and, um... Note... There's about 45 seconds of silence here. They sent me a gun. Two guns, actually. 
The digital doorbell camera I endorsed in episode 1966 did not see who dropped off the package. One of them's a pistol, and the other one looks like something out of an alien movie. And, and bullets. And oh, Wyatt died. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Two more neighbors have killed themselves, and my head hurts really bad. The furious circles are, um, they, uh, they, they, they said they'd take it from here. It was in the box where they said that. Thanks, Hal. We'll take it from here. That's what it said. The internet is so fast now, and, and I started to wonder if that's where they came from. That's when it all started, I guess. That was when Kurt Russell was Santa Claus, if I remember right. That night I had a nosebleed and then masturbated to a bunch of old pictures of Goldie Hawn from back in the 80s. I remember getting blood on my shirt and thinking how embarrassing. And then, no, Goldie from 35 years ago can't see me, doesn't care about my shirt, couldn't care about my shirt. And I was embarrassed anyway, and, and, and... Wyatt. That's, uh, th th that's what I named my roach. He, um, he stopped moving yesterday. Just stopped. Uh, so I, I, I did what anyone with furious circles would do. I, I dug through the trash until I found his head. I had to, you know, I had to do something. I had to try. You see, Wyatt Earp is my friend, and I'm Doc Holliday. Holliday. Holliday! We stick together, you know. So I dug until I found his head, I think, and I glued it back on. Well, first, it just sort of held there, you know? I thought that maybe the circuitry would just reattach itself and that Wyatt would wake up. But then I got the glue and I glued it back on and I sat and I waited and I waited, but he never, he never moved. So I did the only thing I could think of, you know? I mean, I, I took that stupid head off of him. He just didn't look right with it on, you know? And then I said a little prayer and then I ate him. I chewed him up real good, and I swallowed. Now why it's a part of me, and no matter what, no head, no glue, no furious circles can take him from me. Because now he's safe inside my suit of armor. But it still makes me sad. Thanks, Hal. We'll take it from here. I don't know what that means. Three dead neighbors in seven days is a lot, but... Uh, I don't think Wyatt will let me become one of them. I'm sitting here now, though, and I think I have a plan. Wyatt and I have a plan. I'm taking all of the bullets and putting them into the clips. When the furious circles come, me and Wyatt will be ready. Um, um, uh, that's it, that's it for tonight. Maybe we'll be back tomorrow, um... Depends on the furious circles. The furious circles. The furious circles. Sharky one. Yeah, that podcaster I showed you who disappeared. Oh, just that one. I'm only doing one per episode. 
As long as I need to, I guess. Yeah, I don't like the loss of control. It almost feels like the stories will get told whether I want to tell them or not. Cannibal. It's like you said last Cocktails week. It feels like we're just by author Taylor game going McNally. on over our heads. I just wish I knew who the Peter Lewis. Enjoy a, a delicious meal. Welcome to the Cannibal Cocktails, the latest in the Cannibal Collections. This installment focuses on how you can include human body parts in several delicious cocktails to serve at your next party or gathering. Slicing and dicing a human to get ingredients for your recipes can put on a great show while your favored guests enjoy the fruits of your labor. Preparations ahead of time, hmm? To really spice up your cannibal cocktails, you can add some extra oomph to the most boring ingredient. Ice cubes. <laughs> Pull the teeth directly out of the mouth and put one in each cube of an ice cube tray. For best results, leave any blood or fleshy remains <laughs> attached to the teeth. Fill the tray with water and freeze. In normal cocktails, the ice cubes melt and water down the delicious flavor of each drink, but with the cannibal twist, as the ice melts, it releases the bloody and pulpy flavor of a freshly pulled tooth. Pulling teeth out of your obtained human can be done at any time, alive or dead, as long as enough time is left to freeze the water. However, to prepare enough bile for the following drink recipes, it's best to keep the human alive and without food for at least a week. Yes, the author recognizes that this is quite a commitment to make just for a few drinks, but the flavor is exquisite enough to justify the hassle. As referenced in other Cannibal Collections series, investing in an underground dungeon for storing specimens will reap rewards far beyond the material cost. See Cannibal Containment, a new way to grow your own food. Old Fashioned this classic cocktail, enjoyed by all for centuries, has had its recipe adapted for those of a refined and particular taste. <laughs> You'll find that the replacement of certain ingredients does not detract from the original taste, but in fact enhances the various flavors that make this cocktail a truly once-in-a-lifetime experience. Ingredients uh, one half teaspoon sugar, one eyeball, preferably fresh, one teaspoon water, two ounces bourbon, garnish orange peel, or freshly zested human skin. Add the sugar to a low-ball glass, then add water, and stir until the sugar is nearly dissolved. In order to properly harvest an eye for this drink, a grapefruit spoon is absolutely essential. Use your thumb and forefinger to peel back the eyelids, and with your other hand, angle the spoon down and behind the eye. 
The serrated edge of the spoon does an excellent job of severing the optic nerve, and with slight upwards pressure, the eye should pop cleanly out of the socket. Once you have it in your hand, grab a paring knife and cut into the white of the eye, right alongside the iris. There, hold the eye above the lowball glass and gently squeeze. The secretions of the eye should flow nicely on top of the other ingredients. A fresh eyeball has juices that are more flavorful than the bitters the original recipe calls for. Fill the glass with large ice cubes, add the bourbon, and gently stir to combine. Express the oil of an orange peel over the glass, or if you still have a live body for harvesting ingredients, use that trusty paring knife to peel a strip of skin off the hand and express the blood into the drink. Use either the orange peel or the skin to garnish. If your body is still alive while harvesting the eye, raise a glass to them, and make sure to tell them how much better an old-fashioned tastes with their unique additions. They may or may not appreciate the gratitude, but it is only the polite thing to do. We are cannibals, not heathens. Bloody Mary. The Bloody Mary was truly designed for a cannibal appetite. The non-cannibal version found in public is merely a poor imitation of how wonderful this drink can really taste when made with the proper ingredients. And if you've ever been to a hipster bar that serves Bloody Marys with an entire meal on toothpicks on top of the drink, and you'll realize the endless opportunities a cannibal can create with this beverage. If you're feeling ambitious, you can grind human meat ahead of time and serve a human burger, or maybe even some smoked and savory human bacon on the side. Something to think about. Ingredients. Fingernail powder, one lemon wedge, one lime wedge, two ounces vodka, four ounces tomato juice or fresh blood, two teaspoons prepared horseradish, two dashes Tabasco sauce, two dashes Worcestershire sauce, one pinch ground black pepper, one pinch smoked paprika, garnish, parsley sprig garnish, green olives, garnish lime wedge, garnish celery stalk, or finger bone. To properly collect a fingernail to grind into powder, grab a toothpick and uh, insert it underneath the tip of the nail. That's right. You might need to use a bit of force, especially if using a live specimen. <laughs> Once the toothpick is inserted down the length of the fingernail, grind it back and forth across the tip of the finger to separate the nail from the flesh below. Now, once the nail is loose, simply use upwards pressure to peel the nail back and rip it off the tip of the finger. Hmm? Continue this process to collect all ten fingernails. Use a mortar and pestle to grind the fingernails. You may need to clean away the remaining blood and flesh that may have clung to the nail. If you have a fresh body and have collected the fingernails, you can also collect the blood for this aptly named cocktail at the same time. 
All you need to do is squeeze each finger over a bowl. Pretend you're milking a cow's udder, and you'll be able to juice each finger for all it's worth. Now, an important note, if you're using fresh blood, it's best to use it right away before it starts clotting. The taste will be the same, but it lends to a poorer mouthfeel when there are bloody clots getting stuck in the straw. Hmm. Pour some ground fingernail onto a small plate. Rub the juicy side of the lemon or lime wedge along the lip of a pint glass. You can also skin the finger and use the skin to rub on the rim of the glass for this as well. It's also convenient for later steps in this recipe. Roll the outer edge of the glass in the fingernail powder until fully coated, then fill the glass with ice and set aside. Squeeze the lemon and lime wedges into a shaker and drop them in. Add the vodka, tomato juice or fresh blood, horseradish, Tabasco, Worcestershire, black pepper, paprika, plus a pinch of fingernail powder along with ice and shake it gently. Strain into the prepared glass. Garnish with parsley sprig, two speared green olives, a lime wedge, and a celery stalk or finger bone. Now, since you've already used the blood, it only makes sense to use everything contained in the finger. You do not want any of this specimen to go to waste after all the work you've done in harvesting from it. So, grab that trusty knife, and you have two options available to you. You can either clean the meat off the bone before you separate the finger, or you can do it after. If this is an entertainment dinner where your specimen is part of the show, clean the bone before separation. Either way, once you have the bone, crack it in half to allow the marrow to seep out and add it to the drink to include the extra flavor it contains. While you're at it, get the remaining fingers and use the bones as garnishes in the remaining cocktails. Adios, motherfucker. <laughs> this drink is best served last as a final goodbye to your loyal specimen, whether they are loyal by choice or not. The uh, harvesting of the last organ typically results in death unless you are particularly adept at surgery and keeping them alive. If you are hosting a party, it's also a good idea to serve this drink last, as your guests most likely will not need any more alcohol after this beverage. However, it is your party. You can do what you want. Ingredients. One half ounce vodka, one half ounce rum, one half ounce tequila, one half ounce gin, one half ounce blue curacao, two ounces sweet and sour mix, Sprite or 7-Up to top, garnish lemon wedge, garnish preserved cherry or freshly popped eyeball. The cannibal sweet and sour alternative can be a bit tricky, even for the most experienced mixologist. The sour comes directly from the stomach, which produces an acid that adds a beautiful sour flavor. Getting the best flavor with no adulterants requires keeping your specimen free of food for at least a week prior to harvesting. It is also tricky trying to keep your specimen alive during the collection of the stomach acid. If you happen to have an anatomy textbook nearby, it will be of great help. Being able to properly locate the stomach before digging in with your knife is key. 
You do not want to accidentally split the stomach open before you remove it from the body. The author will do their best to describe how to harvest the stomach, but please keep in mind that the author is not a surgeon and does not really care whether the specimen survives the procedure or not. Grab a trusty knife and cut into the upper abdomen just below the breastbone. Slice the flesh all the way down to the navel. At this point, you can spread the incision open, and <laughs> you should see the stomach. It's a U-shaped, and you'll want to clamp both ends shut if you want to keep your specimen alive. If you don't care at this point, just leave everything open. Once you have the stomach visible, you can use that trusty knife to cut that bitch out. If you have properly starved the specimen, the stomach should contain nothing but stomach acid. You can slice open the stomach or use one of the free ends to squeeze the contents into a small glass. To create the perfect sweet and sour mix, it should be one part sweet and two parts sour. The best thing to use for the sweet is a fluid ounce of simple syrup. Whatever amount of stomach acid you have on hand, just follow the rule of one part sweet to two parts sour, and your drink will remain mm, delicious. Add the vodka, the rum, tequila, gin, blue curacao, and sweet and sour mix to a highball glass with ice and stir. Top with Sprite or 7-Up. Garnish with a lemon wedge and preserved cherry or an eyeball if you have one remaining. Lucky you. <laughs> oh, those are all the recipes of this installment of the Cannibal Collections. The author wishes you merry drinking and hopes you find the taste to your liking. Remember to raise a glass to all of your lovely specimens and thank them for the great harvest, especially for an even better night of entertainment. Stay tuned for other installments, including the Cannibal Grill Out and Cannibal Sushi. Bye for now. Bye! Here's a joke for you. Why are dentists always moody? Because they're always dealing with teeth. Those horrible fucking monstrosities that sit in our mouths like stoic sentinels just waiting to help us chew our food until one day, bam, out of nowhere, one of them is causing you more pain than you thought possible. <sighs> okay. And in this tale, shared with us by author A.M. Cruz, we meet a woman whose defenseless dentures are being specifically targeted for torture. Performing this tale are Wafia White, Jesse Cornett, and Mary Murphy. So remember, there are people other than dentists and deviants who might be invested in your incisors, motivated by your molars, coveting your canines. Someone like the Tooth Fairy.
The pain started at the spot between my shoulder blades and spread like wildfire throughout the rest of my body. With every pull or movement, it radiated with the heat of a thousand suns. The flesh split further, and warm blood became cold and dried against the flesh of my body. My feet barely reached the ground, but I tugged at the ropes around my wrist and watched as the brown fibers turned crimson as they ripped into the tender skin there. My eyes watered at the pain, and I took a deep breath. As I did, I gagged. The rancid smell in the small room was unbearable. I didn't know if the smell was coming off of me, or off the debris that littered the floor, or the sparse furniture. There was little to no light in the room. It would come on periodically, and there were no windows, no way for me to know how long I had been here. The pain was the only thing reminding me I'm still alive, and every so often I would tug on the ropes to remind myself to stay alive. His visits were never at the same time. There was no way to predict when he would come, except for the few blissful moments when the world would drift away and death caressed my broken body in its arms. He kept me awake. I ran what was left of my tongue over what remained of my teeth and tried to swallow. My throat had gone raw from the screaming. There was no point in doing that anymore. No one ever came and no one ever heard her. The door behind me opened and my knees buckled and my bladder gave out. The little liquid he gave to keep me alive spilled down my naked legs onto the floor. This piss, dirty girl. His voice was like steel wool against cast iron. It made my remaining feelings vibrate. He was a small form, nothing remarkable about him. You could almost say he was remarkable in how unremarkable he was. Not tall or hawking, the kind of man you wouldn't look twice at. The kind you would walk by at the supermarket and not even determine. Khaki pants likely from Sears or Penny's, and a Brooks Brothers shirt were paired today with some navy blue Sperry Dock shoes, the kind with the brown leather laces. Those laces were never functional, and for a brief moment of clarity, I wonder who looked at the shoe and said, I need me some laces I can never really tie. His hair was violently parted to the left. The line defining the part was shiny under the fluorescent light in the room. He wore thick rimmed glasses that were tinted, so I could not see his eyes. Maybe it was for the best. He cocked his head to the side as he stared at me and licked his lips. What am I gonna do about this mess? <sighs> you could try cleaning it up. It was all the bravado I could muster. He would not break me. He laughed heartily, then slapped me before running his clammy hand over my broken, bruised face and skin. I did not want to flinch. I wanted to die so as not to give him the pleasure of continuing to see me suffer. The sight of his growing erection when he cut into me or pulled out another tooth made me physically ill. He adjusted what little he had to work with beneath the pristine cotton of his khakis and pulled from his pocket a shiny new pair of pliers. Look what I bought for you. 
sick fuck. He grinned from ear to ear as he admired the steel of his new instrument of torture. He held it up to the light so that I might admire it as well, when all I wanted to do was bury it deep in his eye. One of my eyes was cloudy. He injected them both the first day, and it had blinded me for the first few of his visits. Over time, one eye had regained its sight, but the other one was still overcast. I thought I couldn't see him, but I could for as long as I remained alive. I would remember his plain, nothing special face forever. Open up. I turned my face, holding my lips tightly together. I knew it would likely prove futile, but I would not make it easy for him. No, no. You know what happens when you don't do what I say. He took a handful of coarse salt from the table somewhere behind me and ground it fiercely into one of the open wounds on my side and I screamed. Tears blinded me and I fought against the blinding pain in my entire soul. That's better. He pushed two disgusting fingers into my mouth and greedily ran them over my gums and teeth. I felt him tug on the very last tooth at the top right of my mouth. Oh, yes. This one will do. (laughs) I tasted the pliers before they even trapped my tooth beneath their pincers. He tugged and pulled harder. I'd been told once by a dentist I had long roots. Oh, my sweet one. This one is going to be so good. I could almost, no, I could both smell and hear his mouth watering and feel his growing erection against my lower abdomen as he rooted around in my mouth, while simultaneously cooing and sweet-talking as he rubbed himself and tore the tooth from my mouth. The long root covered in fleshy viscera as he shouted in delight before doubling over in release. I turned my face away, refusing to let him see my face as he climaxed. I would not participate. But he pulled my face back and stuck another finger into the hole he had just made and smiled greedily. And what's this? Have you been holding out on me? He stepped behind me, and I could hear him rummaging through what I imagined were drawers and the table behind him and saw him return with a scalpel. Without giving me time to close my mouth, he pulled my head back and pierced the flesh of my gums, covering an undescending wisdom tooth. In packed since birth, it had never came out. My head swirled as the scalpel sliced into my flesh of gums. My legs gave out, the ropes the only thing holding me up and keeping me from collapsing onto the dirty floor like a sack of potatoes. Oh no. Up, 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 up. He tugged me back up and again began to dig into my mouth until finally he pulled from it one pristine, white, baby wisdom tooth. He held it up and licked his lips. He pulled a handkerchief from his back pocket, removed his glasses, and wiped the sweat from his face. That belongs to me. The voice was not his. Sing song of effervescent, 
It cut the room like the sunshine on a rainy day. It reminded me a bit of a child's cartoon character I heard once upon a time. Daisy, or had it been Minnie? It didn't matter. I figured I'd finally gone off the deep end. He spun on his heels and faced the source of the voice and dropped the scalpel and the freshly pulled tooth. So he heard it as well. Guess we both must be losing it. I could only see the back of him. His shirt had become soaked in sweat, and it had stuck to his back the way one's thighs stick to the leather furniture in the hot summer months. How'd you get in here? His voice was not as confident as it had been with me. That is mine. The tone brokered no question. The intrusion into his sacristy was too much for him to understand. I snickered at the sound of his trembling voice. Blood dribbled down my chin and neck, and I could not care any less. He made to backhand me, but once again the voice spoke, the words cutting the thick air in the room. Give it to me. He moved to the sound of her words and allowed me to see for the first time the source of the saccharine sweet voice. With my good eye, I could see what looked like a little girl in a Catholic uniform, much like the one I wore when I was a kid. White tights and black penny loafer shoes. She even had shiny pennies, like those my dad used to put in mine every morning. Her hair was parted in the middle and put up into ponytails on either side of her head. She even had the same hair ties I used to, the ones with the round balls that would hurt like crazy if they slapped back as you put them on. This was where the similarities ended. Her face was pale and round, and her eyes an impossible shade of green. She had her arms crossed at her chest, and she once again demanded he give her the tooth. When I turned my head a bit, however, I could see something else. Instead of my erstwhile doppelganger, there was an impossibly large carapace against the wall. In front of it, there stood a hulking creature with the legs of a locust and the lower body of a caterpillar. Its top body, however, was more humanoid, with large wings that sprouted from its back like a luna moth and covered the length of the room to either side of her. She was beautiful in both forms. This form isn't meant for you. Her true voice was in my head, and the image of the creature reverted to that of the little girl. The man, however, was not given the same courtesy. The smell of fresh urine hit my nostrils before I saw the wet spot spreading across the once pristine khakis, the ones from either Sears or Penny's. I said, give it to me. There was an underlining tone of malice that raised the hair on my broken and bruised arms. He made to start throwing things at the girl, but now that I knew what he was really seeing, it made his feeble attempt seem almost comical. What are you? Get out! <laughs> she tapped her foot and held out a hand like a petulant child and paid no mind to the man as he panicked. I thought I'd never get you. He tossed the knives, the pliers, and anything else he could get his hands on at the creature, but she did not budge. When he finally tired himself out, 
She walked over to where the tooth had fallen and picked it up and admired it. She smiled as she looked up at the tooth, then at me. There was genuine affection for the prized tooth for a moment and a look of sympathy, or was it pity for me? She turned and faced the man, and with that she opened her mouth, but not like a regular person. She opened her mouth so wide that her forehead faced the wall behind her completely. You could see the multiple circular rows of teeth. There, in one spot that was empty, she pushed my tooth and once again closed her mouth. The man screamed. His was a high-pitched, guttural scream that hurt my ears. The little girl looked disgusted by his state of panic and walked up to him. She took him by the neck and held him up off the ground. He tried fruitlessly to kick out of her grip as his color turned from pale white to a pretty shade of blue. The little girl then took her other hand and touched her finger to his chest. He screamed as blood soaked the front of his blue Brooks Brothers shirt. He split open and his insides fell onto the floor like a bundle of wet rags. She tore his head from what was left of his body, ripping open his mouth and admiring his teeth before turning away in disgust. She tossed his head to the ground before wiping her hand on her uniform and turning to talk to no one in particular. Gross. So many cavities. He really should have flossed. This couldn't be happening. I started to cry. Tears of happiness and fear. I was so very tired and everything hurt. Please. She came back over to where I was hung. What was that? I tried to talk again, but I couldn't. I fought against the need to sleep. The hunger that grew in the pit of my stomach and the pain that filled every single cell of my form. Sleep. With that last word from her, I was lost to sweet slumber. A beeping sound like an alarm clock woke me up as I tried to sit up and find the source to shut it off. It wasn't until I saw I was plugged into an IV and a few different monitors that I realized I was in the hospital. My mother was asleep in the chair by the bed, and the soft light of the hospital room beckoned me back to sleep. I adjusted the pillow to once again sleep when I felt something against my fingers. From beneath the pillow, I pulled a shiny half dollar. There is a force in this world that is as terrifying as it is unstoppable. It's a tangled, confusing web filled with torment, anguish, and fury. It has decimated nations and brought great heroes to their knees. It is suffering incarnate, and yet it is still inside us all. I speak, of course, of toothache, uh, but also love. At least in this tale, shared with us by author Emily Hyatt, 
where a love triangle turns into a dagger in the heart. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Aaron Lillis, Erica Sanderson, and Atticus Jackson. So forget the beast with two backs. This yarn of passion and betrayal features a beast with two very sharp, clawed hands. I don't think it'll hurt too much, though. That's why I wanted you to hear it from me. My finger couldn't stop racing. My body couldn't keep up with how fast my mind was racing. My mind kept going back. Everything that happened. Everything he said. I'm sorry, Evangeline. It's not working out. It hasn't been working out for a while. Surely you felt it too. People just grow apart, you know? They can still love each other, I guess. Just not like that. I knew the truth, but I had to talk to her to be sure. Elena had been my best friend since freshman year of college. She'd seen me through all my drunken nights and broken hearts and heated rants. I loved Elena like a sister. I thought nothing would ever come between us. But we always get disappointed in the end. I really couldn't blame Elena. Jack was a stud. He was a stud I dated for two years. He was kind, sweet, witty, and his eyes made me weak. They were the most beautiful thing in the world to me. Now, when I think of his eyes, all I can see is how they hardened over time and how they were ultimately drawn to someone else. I called Elena after I talked to Jack. She answered after about four rings. She knew. Hello? I couldn't help but admire her failed attempt at acting like everything was fine. I figured it would be easier to just get to the point. But then again, nothing about that conversation was easy. Is it true? Is what true? Don't play fucking dumb with me, Elena! I'm not obtuse, and he just dumped me, and I just need to know it's you. Silence over the line. Yes. Yes, F. I wanted to tell you. I wanted you to hear it from me. Please let me explain. I hung up. I'm not a violent person. I don't like guns, and I hide my face when blood is spilled in movies. But when I punched the wall after that phone call with Elena... The pain felt good. Then I did it again and again and again, and pretty soon, I felt nothing. I watched the blood trickle down my knuckles. Tiny red rivers made their way down my forearm, and droplets plopped on the floorboards. I had to push down the elation that began to bubble inside me at the sight of the carnage. I was not a violent person. I was not. My finger slowed to a stop. I pushed the memory of the blood out of my mind and forced my body off my bed. I had been festering there for a full 24 hours. It was time to at least brush my teeth. My feet clomped on the hardwood floor as I made my way to the bathroom. 
I eventually, reluctantly, found my face in the mirror. My normally pensive brown eyes were vacant of any thought or emotion. The dark circles seemed to be sinking deeper and deeper into my face. I splashed cold water on my face, trying to wash away the bullshit of the day. Suddenly, a loud crash pulled me out of the water. The sound had emanated from my room. Quickly, I scanned my tiny bathroom, searching for something to defend myself with. I settled on my wooden toilet paper holder. I slowly crept out of the doorway of my bathroom, paused. Strange, my apartment was still, as if the noise had never happened. That didn't keep me from clutching my wooden weapon, cranking it back like Craig Biggio. I inched my way down the hallway to my room. I paused outside the door, took a deep breath. The memory of blood making its way down my arm flashed in my mind, just for an instant. I spun into the room. There was no one there. My posters hung pristinely on the wall. My books and movies stood in their normal spot on my bookshelf, and my bike was leaning in the corner. But I'd seen my fair share of horror movies. I knew where to look. Despite my thorough search, nothing turned up. There was no one under my bed, in the closet, or hiding in the curtains. I sighed and wandered back to the bathroom. I got ready for bed without any further disruptions. My mind ruefully wandered back to Jack and Elena, and soon I was once again wallowing in self-pity, my bedroom scare far from my mind. I crawled into bed and tried to think of things that did not start with the letters E or J. The most frustrating thing was that I knew I would forgive them. I loved them, albeit I loved them more individually rather than together. But I knew I would forgive them. It would just take time. My mind slipped into unconsciousness as random thoughts flooded my mind. Then, I heard it again. It was softer this time. More of a timid knock. I tried to ignore it. It was probably nothing. Just a branch on the window. But my eyes burst open as I realized the knocking was not on glass. It was on wood. Like the wood my wardrobe was made of. Reluctantly, I turned my head in the direction of the foreboding giant on the opposite side of the room. The knocking stopped. So did my breathing. I thought I was dreaming. A sudden... Heavy banging from the wardrobe quickly shut down that hypothesis. I was horribly, painfully awake, and so was whatever had made its way into my wardrobe. One of my wardrobe's immense, dark oak doors slowly crept open. The groaning hinges sent a chill down my spine. I tried to think, tried to do everything in my power to pull myself from the fear paralysis gripping my body. I searched desperately in the dark for the makeshift weapon I had clung to earlier, but I remembered I had returned it to the bathroom. Damn my incessant need to put things where they belong. I groped in the dark for my lamp. My fingers finally found the cold metal switch. The light bulb thrust the room into a pale yellow light. Still, there was no one in the room. But the wardrobe told a different story. 
both of its doors were wide open. Whoever or whatever was in there had escaped. With shaking hands, I did the only thing I could do. I looked for it. My heart made my blood scream in my ears as I reached for the sheets extending over the side of my bed. A quick yank exposed the empty space underneath. Nothing. I released a breath and let the sheets fall. I sat up and was faced with the most horrible thing I had ever seen. There was no person hiding in my wardrobe, but the monster hunched on my bed made me wish I was facing a human instead. The thing had a humanoid body, but it sat on its two back legs like an ape. Its long, raw-boned arms were accompanied by deep ruby talons, almost as if they had been permanently dyed by blood. Its face... Oh, God. Its face... It was twisted and warped, a shifting mass of dark clouds I couldn't quite get a good look at, but were too terrifying to stare at for too long. The only thing I knew for certain was that it had dark, dark red eyes, and they were trained right on me. The screams escaped my throat before I had even finished getting a full look at the creature. I grabbed for my lamp in an attempt to smash it on its gnarled head, but the thing jumped on me before I had a chance. My screams became louder, more desperate, as the creature's sharp talons slashed into my flesh. The creature was smart. It wanted me to scream. The shrieks made its job so much easier. My mouth was wide open when the black liquid first came up. The creature arched its back over and over, like a cat conjuring a hairball. When it opened its mouth, a geyser of inky liquid erupted. It spewed from the thing's mouth and swiftly went straight down my throat. I tried to hit and punch and most of all, close my fucking mouth. But the creature's black fluid flowed quicker and quicker, the sheer volume of it making me wonder how my stomach hadn't exploded. I couldn't move. I could barely think. Breathing became too much of a chore. The last thing I saw was the creature's tenebrous eyes and the malicious joy that sparked in them as the black secretion slowly came to a stop and my world faded into nothingness. I struggled to pull myself out of a groggy stupor. My eyes peeled themselves open, crusted shut and puffy from... tears? I couldn't remember why I had been crying... I was alone in my bed, but I had a lingering feeling that I had only recently become the sole occupant. In the back of my mind, I had thought that I would have woken to a horrible mess in my bedroom, but everything looked the same, despite my sheets being exceedingly disheveled. We're gonna get him. We'll get him, don't you? Worry, we'll get him. Thoughts were still grappling with each other in my foggy brain, but the voice was clear as day. It was like an involuntary inner monologue. It wasn't my voice. It was gravelly and malevolent and hungry, and it hadn't stopped whispering since I regained consciousness. The blood, the gore... Remember how it made you feel? 
Hold on to it. Don't push it away. Don't push me away. My heart was being suffocated in an icy vice of terror. Yes, I'd been prone to negative thoughts in the past, and they were bound to be more recurring with all the shitty relationship drama. But those whispers, those promises, were comforting me in a way I didn't know I needed. They encouraged. They instigated. They ignited something. My fear gradually evolved into something else. Something I was not expecting, but welcomed eagerly. Anger blossomed inside my chest and seemed to proliferate with every thump of my heart. Bastard, Cretan. A no-good son of a bitch. Two years of your life you gave him. And how did he repay you? I tried to ignore it. I really did. I tried to push down the threatening thoughts, but the voice was deafening, and it was not leaving. Pure, unadulterated rage flowed through my bloodstream like a drug, making my brain overflow and my hands sweat. Fury consumed me. He has to pay. You know he does. I slipped out of bed and made my way to the wardrobe. Why had I been afraid of it before? I couldn't remember. I pulled on a pair of pants and made my way to the door. I paused as I was making my way through the kitchen. The voice was instructing me. I listened. Yanking open a drawer, I snatched something from inside before making my way into the night. It didn't take me long to find my way to his house. I had spent many nights there. So comfortable, so happy, so weak. I was surprisingly quiet on the porch. The sliding glass doors were always unlocked. What a fucking buffoon! Almost like he was asking for it. I stepped into the shadowy living room, full of empty hard seltzer cans and miscellaneous textbooks. My feet stopped moving when I spotted the slightly overweight golden retriever on the couch. Peanut's fluffy orange ears perked up when he saw me. Jack and I had adopted him together at the shelter, but because he had paid for the adoption fee, Jack claimed ownership over him. Kill the dog. Do it. Air was refusing to escape from my lungs. I couldn't. I wouldn't. But any moment now, Peanut would start barking and ruin everything. My fists involuntarily clenched and I strode over to the dog on the couch. Peanut surprised us both by bouncing off the couch and nuzzling his way into my sweaty hands, all the while not making a sound. Jack may have paid for the dog, but he fed him even less often than he washed his own dick. And that was very infrequent. I maintained my surprising stealth as I made my way up the stairs to his bedroom. Usually I'm clumsy and bumbling, tripping over carpet and knocking things onto the floor. But that night, I was dark as night, deadly as sin. 
the voice coaxing me on. I'll protect you. I'll help you. Just fall into me. Give into me. Follow my lead. The door to Jack's bedroom was shut, but the doorknob twisted with ease. He was asleep, of course. I stood over him while the sound of his sleep apnea consumed the room. I watched his broad chest rise and fall uneasily. Imagine how peaceful he would look if he wasn't moving at all. Perhaps it would even be beautiful. My feet made their way over to his bed. Cautiously, I crept onto the mattress. By some miracle, Jack didn't budge. I straddled myself on top of him, a move I had done hundreds of times before. All familiar places inevitably lose their comfort. Enjoy this. It will be the last time. I admired his black hair and tranquil expression. Despite everything, it made me smile. The smile remained on my face as I pulled out the object I'd brought from my kitchen. The serrated knife was long and menacing. It had been a gift from Jack's father for our occasional Sunday night barbecues. What a touching full circle moment from father back to son. There was a moment of hesitation in my previously confident demeanor. My thoughts from earlier that night came back to haunt me. I was not a violent person. I was not. This isn't violence. This is nature, finally taking its vengeful course. The knife was easy to bring down. Jack's eyes bulged open shortly after the knife had found its home in his chest. He looked down at the handle in his sternum. The sound that escaped from his throat was music to my ears, the sweetest thing I had ever heard. The voice transformed into the poisoned words he and Elena had said. I'm sorry, Evangeline. The knife rose up, down again. Surely you felt it too. Up, down. People just grow apart, you know? Up, down. I wanted you to hear it from me. Up, down. My arms eventually grew stiff and weary, and the knife stopped falling. Everything was crimson and sticky and unsettlingly warm. The sheets, the pillow, my clothes... My hands. After a few endless minutes, I peeled myself off of the corpse. With legs that seemed to weigh nothing, I made my way back to the porch. Sitting on the steps under the stars, I realized that the voice was finally silent. I hoped it would never come back, but simultaneously longed to hear it again. Peanut trotted out of the open doors and laid his head in my lap, his chest getting stained by the blood. 
My hands were shockingly steady as I began to stroke his soft head. Jack's cigarettes and lighter laid on the top step. I had always hated his unfortunate little habit, but I ached for something to fill my lungs besides the harsh night air. I gently scooched Peanut's head over as I pulled my phone out of my back pocket. It was a number I knew by heart. An afterthought. Hello? Elena's voice was groggy. I had woken her up. Good. Ev? You okay? He's dead. What? He's dead. And I wanted you to hear it from me. I ended the call before Elena said anything. I dragged a cigarette from the carton and lit it with the lighter of a dead man. I inhaled a deep breath of smoke as the night swallowed me. The only thing that could be seen was the burning end of the cigarette and the ash that floated down as I hit it. If you've ever worked on a farm, you know that farming machinery can be lethal. Your job can involve wrestling with hardware every day that could crush you into oblivion, burn you to nothing but ashes, fillet you into a bloody pulp so fine that they need a barrel to transport you to the crematorium. And in this tale, shared with us by author George Cotronis, we're forced to question whether those machines would choose to do that, given half a chance. Performing this tale is Graham Rowett. So brace yourself for a brutal, violent look at the dark side of agriculture. Rural living isn't always peaceful, even in the heartland. The Day Before You look outside at the golden-brown wheat fields. You can tell just by looking at it. But you walk down to the field anyway and cut a couple down. Feel them in your hands. You take a sample into town and the test confirms what you already knew. It's time to harvest. You tell your wife when you come home and she only nods as she does the dishes. You go out to the barn and caress the old machinery, appeasing it like a god. You check the belt... The plugs. The feeder. You start it up, and you're pleased to see that it runs. When you wake up in the morning, the sun isn't up yet. Your body aches. Your fingers won't bend. Your joints are stuck. It takes time for the muscle to warm up, for the joints in your body to start working again. You try not to wake your wife as you stumble in the dark, as you walk like an old man and put the coffee on. Your left arm is fucked. You can't bend the elbow enough to wash your face. You use your right arm for everything because it's still strong enough to hold a coffee cup, even though the knuckles hurt like a son of a bitch. The heat from the cup helps with the pain, but only for a while. 
You pop two pills. They are four times the strength you started off with. You look outside at the wheat fields. You hope the harvester doesn't break today. You're 42, but you feel like 65. You have rheumatoid arthritis, just like your father and his father before him. You think about your son and hope that it skips him. Hope that God gives you that, at least. Your grandfather died young. He couldn't work with his hands anymore, so he hung himself in the barn until your father found him when he got home from school. He never talks about it. Your father got the double bill, arthritis and the cancer. Two years in the ground. You walk out to that same barn and get in the cab of the combine harvester. The blood is never coming out of your clothes. That's okay. You're trying to wash your arms, but blood and guts is hard to get out. You rub them raw. Your son is in the other room crying, but you don't have time to console him. His mother is trying. You don't understand what the fuck happened. The dog has run alongside the combine every day. He knew better than to run in front of it. You'd never heard of it happening before. Field mice... Maybe a raccoon or something, yeah. But never anything as smart as a dog. You can outrun a combine easy. Why would it run into the header? You stare at yourself in the mirror. You can't answer that question. What happens when an animal is sucked into a harvester is... It tears it up. The header mangles it, and then it gets stuck into the feeder. And most of it gets sucked in. Just like the wheat. Except for the cartilage and some fur. The Combine is a big, ancient thing. This is what your father used. It breaks down almost as often as it don't. It's rusted. You can't buy parts for it anymore, and you've soldered parts of it so many times that it's mostly made out of soldering. There's three steps up into the cabin. You need a tetanus shot just to ride this thing, but it's the only one you got, and you can't afford a new one. So you keep it well-oiled and happy. Because you need to. You call it Betsy, but not really in the warm way you might call your first wife or your rifle in the war. You spit the word out like a curse, because this thing, this piece of metal has more control over your life than you. You live and die by its whims. You pray that it doesn't break down every time you start it up, and if it's merciful, it doesn't. When the dog, Mick, runs through the field and gets caught into the thresher, Blood flies up to the screen. You don't need to go look to know that the dog is gone. You just grip the wheel and pray to God it didn't fuck up the harvester. When you get down from the cab, you see parts of the animal still stuck to the header and the feeder. You have to reach in and pull out the parts, because bone will fuck up the blades. So you pull out your son's pet, piece by piece, all discarded in the dust. You bury the remains under a tree so your son never has to look at his dog all chewed by. Behind the harvester, the field is showered with blood. The combine runs smoothly as you rest your hand on its side. You can't sleep. You are wide awake, and it's four o'clock in the morning, and it's been five hours since you lay down next to your wife. The combine runs better now. You know this. You feel this. It purrs like a kitten when you start it in the morning. It never complains. The temperature gauge never rises. 
You can't remember if you put any gas in it the other day, but it says it's full. This worries you. You hope you're not going crazy, but you're not sure anymore. In the dark, you stare at the ceiling. Your palms are sweaty. Your heart is beating hard. You turn your back to your wife and try to fall asleep. In the morning, your fears are ridiculous. Deflated. You check up on your son, now sleeping with a puppy plush animal. You walk downstairs and make coffee, drink it in a few gulps and walk outside. In the fields, the silence is complete and unending. You check the combine one more time before you start it up. There's no sign of any gore you might have missed yesterday, but you find the corpse of an owl in the thresher's maw. You pull it out and chuck it out in the field. You think about praying, but a part deep down in you thinks it might piss off the combine. So you don't. You climb into the cab and start it up. It struggles a bit, just enough to make your heart stop in your chest, but it fires up just fine after that. You make a three-point turn in the empty field and start mowing down the wheat. The air soon fills with dust and stalks of wheat. It's one in the morning when the combine's engine sputters and fails. The taillights illuminate the field in front of you and little else. You curse and turn the key over, but it's dead. Your heart grows cold and your sweat starts to cool. You curse and bang your fists on the wheel. The grain is still in the tank, and you don't know if the chute is going to work, so you can't unload it into the truck. You put your head down and stay like that for what seems like hours. You kill the lights and sit there, in the silence and the dark. You can't go home. The idea of getting in your truck and driving off, never coming back, flashes briefly in your mind. But you kill it fast, before it has time to grab hold. And just like that, in the dark, you go a little crazy. You take out your knife, roll up your pant leg and start cutting. You cut deep and the blood flows onto the cabin floor and down the steps. You count to 10,000 and try the engine again. It sputters and fires up. You limp to the truck, drive it up to the combine and unload the grain. The combine wouldn't start up in the morning. After spending hours trying to figure out what's wrong with it, you called it a day. Now, in the dark, you find yourself considering feeding it something. You have chickens. You could probably spare a couple. You get out of bed. Down the hall, you check on your son, sound asleep. You consider watching some TV, but instead you stare out the kitchen window towards the barn, where the beast lies. Only that's not where it is. Instead, it's out in the yard. The shock makes you sit down. Your mind races, but there are no likely scenarios as to why the harvester would have been moved. Except for one. The one you know is true. You look outside, peering from behind your curtains like a lunatic. The harvester is now closer to the house. You grab a knife and go outside in your skivvies. The harvester is standing outside, the engine cold. You walk up to the header and place the knife on your wrist. The blades move, and you jump back, dropping the blade. You can't keep feeding it. 
you'll go crazy. You pick up the knife, eyeing the harvester as you do. You go back inside. You hear the whirring of the blades from the house. It takes a moment for your brain to catch up. That, no, this is not a different combine out in your field. This is not the TV playing in the other room. This is your combine, and it's running without you in it. You sprint out the kitchen door, flying off those five steps, too old to be doing this, feeling the jolt as your feet hit the ground, run up your spine, knowing that you will suffer later. A terrifying metallic sound is coming from the barn, and you don't need to ask where your son is, because this is how these things happen. They happen to others, never to you. But why not? Why not you this time? Why not you? In the old barn, your only son is lying on the ground, struggling to back away from the maw of the machine, its roar deafening in the enclosed space. He's knocked down some two-by-fours and some pitchforks and tools, and the combine is chewing it all up, spitting metal back at him. You grab the kid by the back of the shirt and drag him away, lifting him up and sending him flying, a little too hard, into the dirt by the side of the barn. Safe but now bawling for his mama and scared because his daddy didn't reach out to hug him, instead ignores him and runs to the cab to shut the machine down. Your son rubs his skinned knee, and he's both scared and angry at the same time. His mother takes him into the house for some milk and cookies, while you slowly but surely lose your mind in the barn, talking to a machine. You can't have him, you say. He's my son. God damn you. And the word is holy, especially for your family, especially for you, the man blessed with only one child. You get angrier. You curse some more. I'll tear you the fuck apart before I ever let you touch my boy, you yell, spittle flying from your lips. I'll take a sledgehammer and tear you apart with my own hands, you piece of shit. The TV says a storm is coming. Maybe it will hit your town. Maybe not. If it does, it will wet the wheat. The money you take in won't be enough to cover the debt. You'll lose the farm. You'll lose everything. You change the channel to a kid's show and let your son watch. Your wife is outside feeding the chickens. You watch the show for a while, but leave before she comes back. There's nothing else to do but race to harvest the wheat before the storm hits. That's all. You approach the combine slowly, wearily. In the cold light of day, you feel stupid, but not stupid enough to ignore the feeling in your gut. There's blood in the header, and other things. Looks like a possum got chewed up. You didn't hear the combine running last night, but nothing surprises you anymore. Your days are filled with dread. You reach inside and start pulling the critter out. There's very little blood, mostly just skin and bones. You think that if the combine starts working right now, it'll pull your arm right in, up to the shoulder, probably. Maybe it'll pull you in whole, head first. Maybe this is not a bad thing, but it doesn't. And despite the tools it chews up, despite the animal bones, the combine's knives look great like new. So you work the field, the machine sated for today, 
but you already know you'll have to make an offering before the week is through, if you want to harvest these fields in time. But you're scared, because the machine doesn't speak, and it leaves all the decisions to you, and you don't know what you can end up doing. The sky is overcast. Black clouds are rolling in, and you remember your granddaddy talking about the black blizzards back in the 30s. But this is no dust storm. The clouds are pregnant with rain, at least a couple of inches. You still have a ways to go, but you can probably make it if you work fast. The combine is willing, so you harvest all day and on into the dusk. But there's still more, and you'll have to work through the night. You need every last bit, because the bills are always past due, and the mortgage is behind, and the kid needs new shoes, so the other kids at school don't make fun of him. It used to be okay to be poor, at least out here, where everyone worked the land, but not anymore. It's a new age, with new gods and new customs. You're far away from your home when the harvester breaks down. All this land used to be family land, now it's just parts. One here, another over there. You're renting some of it. It's a long way back to the house, but you don't even think of that. There's still a lot of wheat to harvest and you're running behind. You grab the toolbox and get down from the combine. It only takes a minute to figure out exactly how fucked you are. This machine is going nowhere. Not tonight, not ever. It's done. You use your knife to cut your arm this time. Long, vertical cuts. You let the blood flow over the engine for a while, growing weaker as the machine feeds. When you get into the cabin and try to start it up, there's nothing. The engine isn't even turning over. The blood is not enough. Not this time. It wants something else. Something you're not willing to give. You stand in front of the header. The machine is quiet. The engine ticking, cooling down. Dust dances in the headlights of the Combine. You clench your left fist, but it's a weak grip. You switch the hammer to your left. Practice a swing once, twice. There's barely enough power in it to swing it against nothing. This arm is useless. It has betrayed you, and so has the rest of your body. But this part, this one part has betrayed you the most. A man makes a living with his hands. Maybe it can still do that. You take off your belt and tie it snug around your arm. You put out your hand inside the header, against the blades there. You pull back your right arm holding the hammer and bring it down. The pain is excruciating. You break your thumb as your fingers get jammed into the maw, blood immediately pouring from the wound. You scream and bring the hammer down on the metal surface of the combine. Your hand is still in its mouth. The next time you bring the hammer down, you break knuckles and jam it further in. The combine roars. It has tasted blood, and now the header spins, chewing you up, pulling you in. Your head hits the metal guard, but it's hungry, and your arm is inside of it now. It eats you alive, and then you feel something give, and you're free. You fall on your ass in the dirt your arm missing almost from the shoulder down. A waterfall of blood, flesh, and sinew. The harvester is running smoothly. You walk off in the dark, 
heading home. You'll take yourself to the dock and get back here by morning to finish the work. Storm or no storm. Or hire the Jefferson's kid to do it. Either way, the harvester will work now. You look back just once, at dawn's blood-red sky over the combine and the wheat. The fields look beautiful. In our final tale, we find ourselves in a horrifying, violent future alongside Caden, the Furnace Warden, an overworked, overstressed man who plays a vital role in society. But what kind of society would require a job title like Furnace Warden to be so integral? In this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, we find out the terrifying reason and the stakes that Caden's job holds. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Dan Zapula, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, Jesse Cornett, Mary Murphy, Peter Lewis, and Atticus Jackson. So look to the future, retain your mutual gaze with the red eye relay, and, okay, I'll bite, watch out for the goddamn teeth. You'll need to as together we breach the firewall. It's 5.30 in the morning. My shift is over. I really should be going home. But I can't. It doesn't really matter. What's home anyway these days? Just another box in a concrete hive. One that looks out through shatterproof glass over a world that is half gone. A darkened memory shrouded in smoke. To access that box, one of 230 cubicles that make up the building, I'd have to drive. Driving is a risk. Then I'd have to cart my way through the ID station to the parking lot, and then again through the entrance. After that, I'd have to stop for half an hour of decon at the changing station, trudge back to the main lobby, tap in my code for the elevator, clunk my way up to the 20th floor, assuming the elevator doesn't get stuck again, ignore everyone I pass in the hall, and then say, home, to the voice recognition reader on my door. That's a lot of drudgery. That's a lot of security, even for me. And I know all about security. There's no one there for me anyway. I'm in my late 30s. I've got no better half, no kids, no pets, no friends. I used to be sad about that. Used to lose sleep over it. Now, I do it on purpose. I don't even know my neighbors' names. Best thing that can be said for my existence is that I don't have anything to lose. Anyway, home isn't much of an improvement over work. 
Here at the office, I've got a comfortable chair, a TV, a personal computer, even a little refrigerator and a microwave. Most of the time, there's no one to bother me. Here, I have purpose. I have the firewall. Only now, I'm going to die. I can hear them just outside. It'll take some time for them to get in, I think. But not forever. I digress. Growing up, I heard all about the new threat. The ever-changing, always-evolving menace of cyber attacks. We all did, right? Everyone was so worried about that shit. <laughs> Makes me laugh. But man, they really were not kidding. New threat was right on the target. They just didn't know what the real new threat would be. I'm in charge of company security, specifically the firewall. And I'm not talking about a digital firewall, either. It's physical. It's real. From my side, it looks like a grid of pull-out cabinets, just like you'd see in the morgue. They're steel, and they do pull out, screeching a metallic scream the whole way. It's been a long time since anyone bothered oiling them. But there are no walls inside those cabinets. There are only steel trays. The steel rollers that looked like polished chrome back in the day, but now look more like tarnished silver or the blackened iron of cemetery gates. That's where we put the friendly casualties and the kills alike, AKA the second deaths, as corporate likes to refer to them. The relay brings them in from the front lines and I get shipments on the hour all night long. Usually it's no more than five. The dead aren't particularly organized. And usually there aren't any friendlies. When there are, more often than not, there'll be a single gunshot wound to the head. Just a small raised circle of cordite and punctured skull up front, but practically no head left in the back. Other wounds will be superficial, just enough to have poisoned their bloodstream, to have infected them. Anyone who takes so much as a scratch on the front lines gets scrubbed on the spot, and then I get them, same as the fully undead. And that brings me to the other side of the cabinet wall. There are support struts there which fold out and prop up the cadaver trays as I slide them through. The trays themselves are perforated, naturally, or they wouldn't serve any practical purpose, because the other side of the wall is a giant furnace, a crematorium, the first glimpse of hell for the undead. And they do see it, you know. Something about the fire never fails to wake them up one last time. I'd say it was almost like they looked forward to it, if it weren't for the screaming, the low and inarticulate wails of the plague bearers in this apocalypse. I'm so distracted. The noise outside really is almost unbearable. And I'm not even barbecuing any corpses at present. Sounds like they're coming from every side but the wall. They're above me too, hammering on the ceiling, 
their floor. Like, like they know I'm here. <laughs> I suppose they probably do. But there's no screaming up there. I gotta believe the control room staff evac and then forgot about me. Or could be that I don't matter to them. I think I don't matter to anyone. I don't matter. Period. Still, I think I've got some hours left before they get through. They might go away. Sometimes, other places, different circumstances, they've done that. But I don't think they will for me. They're different this time. I can tell when I really listen. But first, I guess I better explain. I know there are a lot of people on the outside and in the clear territories who are getting this. Are you out there, America? Are you listening? Do you hear them? Can you hear what they're doing this time? Everything is recorded in here. You can dial up the audio for any minute of any day in the past 14 months if you're getting this. Then you can match it with the grainy black and white security cam footage if you really feel like it. Scroll that timestamp back to 3 a.m. this morning, and you can watch the latest delivery. They always come. They're as reliable as, as duct tape, as punctual as the morning shit. The face that appears on my desk monitor every hour between midnight and 5 in the morning. The head of the Red Eye Relay. That belongs to a glassy-eyed young lunatic of about 18 or 19. At first, he's just a, a, a burst of static on one of the flat screens built into the desktop. But then the screen unhinges at the base and rises, anchoring itself in front of me. A small black triangle, like a corpse sitting up from the floor. And there he is, his face ash-smeared and sweaty, his bloodshot eyes constantly darting from side to side until they fix on me. And he's always smiling, that toothy, lunatic grin, breathing fast and breathing heavy, as though the fucking apocalypse was the culmination of a first date he was about to take to bed. It's always the same. Still, our last conversation is worthy of note. This was before I was cut off from central control, before I lost contact with the inner perimeter cleanup crew, before the banging and the wailing and the moaning within these very walls. Hard to believe that was less than three hours ago. He breathed into the front gate security cam, fogging the lens deliberately, his eyes rolling a full circle before settling on me again. How many? All I needed was a number. Then I would know how many drawers to pull out while his crew came in. I liked to have this done in advance, the quicker to have the whole stinking ragtag lot of them back out of here. Not that the office smelled particularly good at the best of times. There were 49 cabinets all told, and 13 of them were already occupied. The relay never brought more than 10 second deaths at a time. I could usually wait until the shift's end to fire the furnaces and still leave a clean 7x7 phalanx of slabs for my relief. But I didn't like waiting on people. Least of all, kids fresh out from the front. 
I could hear their engines out there in the background still running. They were on motorcycles tonight, and that meant targeted lightning rains. They knew where the undead were in advance. There was no need to look for them. Engines revved in the background. Were they trying to impress me? Harper waved them down. The engines quieted, but didn't die. If humored, Harper would talk at the damn security cam all night. Answer the question, Harper. Now, you're breaking protocol. Laughter from behind him. Young laughter. He was the senior relay officer on Snuff Patrol, after all. Do you know what Caden means, Caden? <sighs> How many, Harper? Come on, let's do this. You're in the red zone. It isn't safe. But I didn't hit the button. He hadn't given me a number yet. He continued utterly undaunted as his troops tittered and guffawed behind him. Caden means fighter. Caden, it means companion. You should be out here with us in the red eye, Caden. You should be out here with us in the fire. In the blood. I leaned in close to the monitor and snarled at him. Do you know what Harper means? Harper? It means one who plays the fucking harp. Now give me the goddamn number so I can buzz you the fuck in and out of here before you're fucking scrubbed. Harper and his crew cackled at that. <laughs> Twelve. I got you an even dozen, Caden. Oh, the stink is gonna rise high tonight. Dumbass. I slapped down the button with the heel of my hand hard. I stood back from the desk, reeling for the cabinet wall without observing his reaction to that. One by one, I yanked out the cabinets, filling the near-empty room with their steely shrieks, the clanking of metal mouths opening wide for their nightly allowance of blackened flesh. But, twelve? That's a good night's work, as corporate measures such things. Had Harper come upon a whole cluster of them at once? Were they... were they forming up somehow? No. That's impossible. They can't think. Not like that. They can't make alliances. They don't... make friends. Ratcheting metal, cabinets clanking, my hands worked them free. My feet moved on autopilot, and behind me the twin doors that led back to the wide intake hall, thence to the world, opened with an echoing hiss and a click, slowly folding out to receive the 3 a.m. relay. It was too routine to be ominous. There was no indication I should have been on my guard. Until I heard it. Their engines. Their fucking motorcycles were in the hall. Worse, accompanying the racket was the distinct rattling of... Chains? As though they were dragging something behind them. The sound was almost drowned out by the roar of their engines, but not quite. If they were doing what I thought they were doing... They were supposed to bring the bodies in on stretchers. Instead, in they came, filling the room. Two files of three motorbikes each, each bike dragging behind it a pair of corpses. Leaving behind long trails of tattered clothing and putrefied flesh. Brownish smears of half-coagulated blood stretched out back into the hall. Are you crazy? 
I lurched back from the wall towards the center of the room, toward the desk at its center, toward relative safely, as the two lines of motorcycles encircled me, crossing each other in opposite directions, trailing contaminated filth over every square foot of tile they passed. If they heard me, they made no sign. They kept circling me as I drew on my gas mask and gloves. Three boys and two girls in their military-issued black Kevlar jackets and steel-toed boots. And Harper in his red leather captain's vest. All of them laughing behind personalized face masks, shark's teeth, crossed knives, a burning American flag. Above me, Central Control might already be seeing this. They'd send a unit. They'd kill everyone before cleanup, never mind that most of these punks weren't a day older than 16, and one of the girls was younger than that. It was common practice when the patrols went rabid or rogue. They'd kill me just because I was here. Fucking stop! I keyed open the top right drawer and brandished my firearm automatic pistol preloaded with 20 rounds in the firing wheel and one already in the chamber. But that only made them laugh harder. I was both hopelessly outnumbered and completely outgunned. The snuff patrol had two sidearms apiece, not to mention the repeater shotguns slung over their back. They had napalm canisters, concussion grenades, and for reasons I cannot begin to fathom, bucking machetes too. They kept riding, gunning their engines. Harper pulled a wheelie and nearly slid out in the process, the bodies trailing after him, swooshing first right, then left across the freshly sullied floor. One of the bodies, chained at the foot, snapped off at the ankle and slid to a bounce off the bottom row of cabinets, its dead head turning as though to look at me with eyes that were wholly white, already fogged over, blinded with the second death. He held up one hand. Finally, as one, they eased to a stop, forming a perfect circle about me. Harper, still straddling his idling motorcycle, walked backwards with it until he had the back wheel right under the chin of the corpse leaning against the cabinet wall. Then he gunned the engine again, and that back wheel came to life right over its neck turning over it, spinning, grinding flesh, scattering tissue, muscle, and flaky gray chips that might have once been bone. It hardly bled at all until the head broke off. Even then, there was only a slow ooze, an expanding puddle of dead blood from a jugular that no longer pumped a fresh supply. Finally, the engines died. The room quieted. Harper smiled at my firearm which now hung limp at my side. Caden, chill out, my friend. You're fucking stressed. The procedure is pure simplicity, all safety. The second deaths and even the friendlies are cuffed to the burning trays at the wrists and ankles, no exceptions provided they still had wrists and ankles. The relay loads the bodies, and I secure them. Even the headless one, which Harper now lifted onto a slab with the assistance of one of his lackeys, got manacled. Harper set the severed head on its own chest and patted it on the cheek. He caught me glancing warily back to my desk. 
where at any moment I expected another monitor to unfold with the voice of judgment from the control center above us. Do not worry, compadre. Stupid white shirts upstairs ain't gonna give a shit. Not tonight. They got enough to do. Bigger probs, you get me? And they don't have to come this way no how, so it ain't their concern. Right now, out in the world... It's a fucking show. This was from the youngest lackey, the girl, the one with the shark teeth embroidered on her mask. She sounded half spent but happy, just riding the end of an adrenal burn, fresh from their last massacre. They're everywhere, compadre. <laughs> like worms wriggling out under rocks after rain. You should see. I never seen nothing like it before. Nor should you, I thought. What are you anyway, 14 years old? You should be in the clear zones. And goddammit, I'm fucking first warden to you, kiddo, not compadre. But the world just didn't work like that anymore. Most of these kids were volunteers. They'd been sold this job over gaming platforms and social media like it was some kind of combination adventure, real-life video game with guns. Many ran away from home to get in on it. And when they did, Uncle Sam never gave them back. In the relay, kids got used up quick and had to be replaced on the regular. At least there hadn't been any friendlies tonight so far. I cinched the cuffs tight and, after yanking the belt out through the loops in the dead thing's pants, strapped the head down firmly into place as well. I looked directly at Harper. There was no point addressing anyone under his command. Only he made decisions. And who the hell's going to decon this fucking room with me, asshole? I'm off shift at five, and I am not leaving the office like this for Spencer to clean up. Harper wagged a finger at me. Shit to do, shit to do. Can't remember the last time you wanted us to stay, Caden. Oh, I bet you good money I'd bring you another dozen or more at four. I suggest you bake this human lasagna right now before you get yourself an overflow. It's a fucking show out there. I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> Laughter from the others. I looked them over. Children, fingering their guns, winking at each other, smiling under their masks, snickering at me. Harper's madness was catching, it seemed. And why not? It wasn't really Harper's madness, per se. It was all over the place, just as contagious as the plague, and nearly as dangerous. <sighs> Jesus. I had to get to work on this place right away. Even if I wasn't executed for letting this happen, as if I'd had a choice, I had no desire at all to roll the dice any more than I had to against getting sick. My voice oddly quiet and calm behind the respirator. Get the fuck gone. And if you even think about riding in here on those bikes again, I'll radio the firing squad myself. Five minutes later, I had them to myself. Twelve bodies on rollout cabinet trays I hadn't yet pushed back into the wall, all safely strapped down and cuffed in place. All harmless. Fucking dead, after all. Twice dead. I had 35 minutes until the next delivery. 
Looking over my shoulder back to the ceiling monitors, I saw them right off. The red-eye relay, back into the fray, Harper with a fist raised in the air. I shook my head at them and wondered when exactly it had become obvious that the world was coming to an end. What a fucking mess it was in here. I had more than ample supplies to take care of it, but counting the floor out in the entry hall, there was no way I was going to get it all done before shift change. You could take care of the office, I told myself. Better do that, at least. Or I could bake the lasagna. Twenty-five bodies at present, and with two more shifts worth of them still to come. The most I'd ever cooked at once was twenty-two. I didn't want to contemplate what thirty of them or more would smell like. I pushed in a cabinet drawer, slamming it hard to produce the dull thud and resulting clank that signified it had locked in place. To the best of my ability, I avoided looking at the thing while I did it. It was my standard routine. Whenever possible, I saw only the steel. The bodies, as often as not, didn't register to me as male or female, young or old, black or white or whatever. They were things. A horrific toxin on the species, probably set upon us by an angry and vengeful god. For what? I wondered, slamming another one shut. Making war on one another? The good thing about the undead? They burned quicker than the living, especially at the temperature facilities like this one could achieve. An ordinary crematorium bakes its dead at 1400 degrees. A regular corpse roasted for a good two hours at that temperature. For persecuting each other? For poisoning and polluting the planet for centuries? I slammed shut another one. My oven cooked at 2,500 degrees. Not quite hot enough to cook itself, but good enough to reduce the dead to ashes in no time. 25, 30 minutes and ding, you're done. For general hatefulness? God knew I had my own share of that, cooked right into my blood through years of bitter experience. Had I always been this way? I didn't think I had. These days, it was hard to think back too far. Eh, I said to myself, don't overthink it. It's because of those assholes who drive slow in the fast lane. That shit had to end. I was on the fourth or fifth drawer when I first heard it. A low, throaty, decidedly female moan from three slabs over. It caught my attention, forced a mistake. I looked directly at it. In life, it might have been in its twenties or thirties. It wore jeans and a white, blood-spattered t-shirt. It had long brown hair, with eyes that might have matched before they'd filmed over. The middle of its face, including its nose, was entirely gone replaced by a hole you could have stuffed a baseball into. But its mouth, though broken at the upper jaw, worked to open and closed. And it made sound. Not a moan. More than that. Was there a word in it? It could have been my imagination, or an accident of chance. It could be the only sound the ruined thing was capable of making. But its dry, plastic, filmed-over eyes were fixed on the slab right next to it. The body with the separated head. That one was male. And in that moment, I realized 
I hadn't noticed it before, or I hadn't let myself realize it, that it was a child, or would have been, a nine or ten-year-old little boy that Harper had hitched by chain to his motorcycle to drag behind him for his amusement. He was so thin, so frail, no wonder he had come apart so easily, first at the ankle, then at the neck. And his face, there was something similar to the other one. The hair, the pointed chin, siblings. Her tongue wiggled in her head like a summoned snake. His mother? The woman with the hole in her face blinked once. Twice. It seemed deliberate, not reflex. Like it was blinking away tears, but there were no tears. Her chest came up as though she were drawing in air, which she wasn't, of course. But she sure looked like she was. No land. I screamed. I ran to her, took her by the shoulder and the knee without thinking, and slammed her cabinet closed. The dead boy's head, still held in place on its chest by his own belt, blinked. His mouth opened and closed. I sent him in after. Dunk, clank. Then dropped to my knees. Drawing in breath as I could, it was suddenly difficult to do so. The air in here is so thick, and I hadn't even fired the oven yet. I hadn't even closed all the cabinets. I put my face in my hands. Again, I screamed, trying to muffle the cry behind my lips that could not be contained. Then, from another one of the slabs, the unmistakable sound of laughter. could still hear her, the mother of the boy with the relocated head, even as I rose again to my feet to confront the corpse who found all of this so goddamn funny. Her voice was muffled behind the shuttered steel, yet her one word was clear. Nolan, the boy's name. She cried it over and over again, drawing it out as though deliberately, as though it was a conscious decision. How was she breathing? How was she thinking? This, this was impossible. Yet, it happened. I'm a lot of things, but I'm not delusional. Not crazy, not stupid. And I still recalled how the virus in the beginning was only a virus. It killed, yeah, sure. It was deadly as fuck from the start. But the dead didn't get up and fucking walk afterward. Not at first. But then they did. Still, even then, they weren't hostile. They just kind of wandered around waiting to be picked off, shot to second death right where they stood without complaint. They didn't hurt anyone. Until they did. Casualties were light at first. It usually took three or four of those things to overpower a fully live human being, and they didn't work together. They certainly didn't eat their victims. They were mindless, albeit violent, directionless, and slow. Until they weren't anymore. 
until they got hungry six months ago. To some, that was an indication in some weird, unholy way that they were actually alive. But that was bullshit. I've had these things up close and personal right in front of me for three months. They have no blood pressure. There is no pulse, no heartbeat. The dead neurons in their dead brains fire off no signals. Hold a mirror under their nose and lips, you get no fog of breath. These things, these abominations, absolutely do not breathe. And here in the office, at 3.45 in the morning, there arose laughter from one of the slabs. A long, slow, knowing chuckle that bubbled and gurgled. And well it might, for as I approached the thing, all while Mama Zombie still moaned behind me in the background, I saw that laughing dead guy over here had taken a shotgun slug to the throat. His trachea was gone. I could see clear through to the blasted away vertebrae and the half-severed spinal cord, around which shredded muscle tissue vibrated with each flutter of sound. His lower jaw, too, had been dislodged. It hung loose. A half-row of gums, still lined with nicotine-stained teeth, rattling against his ruined neck as he sputtered with mirth. And again, a hideously flapping tongue, hopelessly exposed. This one as cracked and as dry as a tire tread left out over asphalt in summer. His chest, which had taken a shot as well, remained still. I turned from him, went to the desk, rested my hand on the back of my chair. I sighed and rolled it over to him and sat down. An odd sense of serenity settled over me just then. I recalled listening to music over the radio instead of the news. Just announcements from the front line of the apocalypse. An old R.E.M. song sprang to mind. I smiled at the memory. I stared at the thing laid out in front of me. All right, I'll bite. What's funny? This guy was older. His long, dark hair streaked with gray. His ruined Leonard Skinner t-shirt topped with a denim vest. A good old boy. Pure Virginia. Good old boys do enjoy a good laugh, as I recalled. But he couldn't properly answer. Not that he didn't try. His lips over his perfect upper jaw peeled back with the effort. Filmy eyes rolling around in his bone-dry sockets like hard-boiled eggs. I reached out and took his tongue in hand. Listen, Molly Hatchet, if you cannot share, then shut the fuck up, okay? You're being rude. And with a stiff jerk, I yanked his tongue clean out by the roots. It came out easily, and no blood. The undead good old boy seemed not to mind. I pushed his cabinet in, listened to it clank shut. It was time to get this show on the road. Six slabs still to push in. I stood from the chair, brushed my gloved hands down over my front, and set to. Then, to my left, a calm voice. Elderly. Female. She was in a powder blue jogging suit with white trim, her silver hair in a ponytail, 
her open stomach a dry black hole of guts that looked like dead, twisted tree roots. Her eyes stared straight at the ceiling. There was no inflection to her voice at all. It was as though she was practicing learning English, repeating by rote only what she had heard. Again, from the other side, also female but another child. I'll bite. And another. I'll bite. And another. I'll bite. Then all six of them were doing it. Nearly in time, but far from in harmony. Hell no, I thought, shoving another cabinet closed. A middle-aged gentleman with a trim goatee and a sharp business suit. His face split straight down the middle. Fuck this. And an afterthought. Maybe those machetes weren't so useless after all. From behind the closed cabinet, the sound of teeth clicking together. Then, all around me. The five remaining, for no reason at all that I could imagine, had stopped mimicking me and started mimicking him. The room filled with the sound as I came to realize that they were all now clicking their teeth together, even the ones I shut in earlier. All of them who still had more than half a face, anyway. As one, they jerked against the restraints, arms and legs wrenching against steel, jerking, twitching. I couldn't help it anymore. I screamed, shoving in one cabinet after another. I had no words for those screams, equal parts terror and outrage, and a growing feeling that it was somehow not fair that all of this was happening on my watch. It wasn't like I had ever gunned any of these poor assholes down. I wasn't in the red eye. All I ever did was my stupid job. I was the one who ended the fucking nightmare for these freaks. Just like I'm gonna do now, I thought once I had them all safely secure, biting down on the howl that kept coming up unbidden from my throat, finding it impossible to restrain completely. Might as well give them a good send-off. I stood at the side of the firewall at the control panel. I dialed up the temperature gauge, then punched in the number 25 to direct the spread of the interior flame. I gripped the switch in both hands, glowering over my shoulder at the wall of the damned. Every occupied cabinet seemed to rattle. Feet thumped against them as though they were still trying to break free. Chain links and ankle and wrist cuffs rattled from inside. Teeth clicked and clicked and clicked. I wrenched down the lever. When their screams replaced mine, I found that I could breathe freely again. I closed my eyes. I began to calm myself, listened to the waves of flame lick the other side of the wall and then consume them. I listened until the sound of those flames was louder than the wails of the dead. I listened until there was nothing more to hear. By four in the morning, I had the whole walk-in closet worth of hazmat gear and cleaning supplies out in the hall and ready. The red-eye relay was going to do something actually useful tonight if I had my way. And if I got any crazy-ass emo-with-a-gun teenage angst and sass about it, 
well, they'd be in for one hell of a surprise. They'd see a whole new First Warden me if they pulled any shit like that. I was in no mood, and there was still the job to do. But the four o'clock relay never showed, and that was beyond odd. It was unprecedented. I could see one, maybe two of them taken out on a bad run, but the idea of all being wiped out? There was no chance. Still, when they hadn't shown up by 4.10, I put the barrier bar down on my side of the main entrance, and for insurance, barricaded the doors to the office as well. I still had the monitor cams in case they showed up, and I still had a direct channel to the control center upstairs if I wanted it. But not yet. Not until I had this place put right. There was no way I was making it through tonight and then getting scrubbed for failing to follow protocol. The way the disease spread, at least on record, there was no chance I'd been infected tonight. There wasn't a scratch or bite anywhere on me. And only the newly infected among the still living could spread it by breathing or touch. Nevertheless, it was in full hazmat yellow and red that I drew back out the freshly used firewall cabinets, and from a distance of 15 feet away, power washed them down with liquid chemicals from the fire hose. The hole that linked the office to the outside was still covered in tire tread and mud and dead filth. It was 4.30. Spencer and I would have to deal with that together before I left. I didn't want to surprise him with the job, so at the desk I called up my bright box screen to give him a quick heads up. I expected him to answer in transit. He'd have to be on his way by now in order to relieve me on time. Usually he rode the blue line on the overpass. He'd have his government-issued call screen with him, if not his personal computer. But Spencer, my relief, didn't answer. When the first of the undead showed up on the monitor cams at quarter till five, Central Control didn't answer either. The first wall? The one that led to the outside, the one with the barrier bar, broke at 5.15. So here I am. It's now... Oh look, it's seven in the morning, America, and it's looking like bright blue skies today. A cool 65 degrees and not a hint of rain. That's what the cameras and the monitors show me anyway. I'm kind of amazed all this electronic shit still works. The red-eye relay did finally come, you know. I saw it on overhead monitor number three. Saw two of them, anyway, shambling with the rest of the dead into the entrance hall past the broken barrier bar. Don't know their names, but one of them still got his crossed knives face mask on, though he's missing his Kevlar and most of his left forearm. Not sure where their bikes went, but they've both still got most of their weapons. I wonder if they know... And there's the girl, the lackey, clearly dead but not transformed, being dragged behind one of the zombies by her foot, her hair loose and trailing out behind her. Maybe she won't change, not everyone does. Some are fortunate enough to just die, and she's already through that part. Dust dribbles down from the ceiling. The double doors heave in, then breathe back out, they're using a fucking car for a battering ram. 
Not that they're driving it, you understand. That would be crazy talk. No. They've got it in neutral. There are three at either side of it, rolling it back and forth in time with their bare dead hands. They're working together. And all for me. There are holes in the wall where they've punched through. Not all of the walls are steel. Some are just regular old drywall this far into the complex. Arms and hands reach through the walls, the occasional tentative leg. Some of the holes run with dead, brownish blood. It's as though the office itself is dying, bleeding out, giving up. Which, of course it is. I can hear them. I can hear their voices, the groaning within the very walls, their chittering and clicking teeth. I have the gun, but I won't take the easy way out. I won't end it that way. Not me. But but they're going to eat me alive. Oh, God. It won't be long now. I'm so scared. Because I know they want me. Only me. Exactly me. I can hear it in the one voice I recognize. A single word breaking through the holes in the drywall and heard over all of the inarticulate others. There's no mistaking it, even in death. A lunatic roar, which he bellows over and over again. Caden? Caden? Caden! I'm right here, motherfucker, and I'm gonna empty every round in this cartridge wheel all on you. Only you, you fucking dumbass. The important thing, America, here at the end, the end of me anyway, if not all of us, is that I send this message with important information. You've seen all the evidence. It's indisputable. Do with it whatever you can, if there's anything to be done at this point. They're talking now. They're planning together. They're not fighting each other. Neat trick, that. We probably should have learned that trick ourselves, right? You, me, the whole fucking human race. Anyway, thought you should know. Good luck. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. 
Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.